This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 208, Ethics. Time now for another fun-filled episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. The rip-roaringest, rootinest, tootinest, laughter-filled look at Star Trek you're likely to find. This week, Ken, ethics. The one where a doctor is, is experimenting on living people and, and Worf wants to kill himself. Well, f- In a moment, John's going to, uh... John's going to tackle things uh, trivial. I'm looking forward to this. But first, a few words about a bunch of starships. Hey, have you ever dreamed of commanding your own starship? What about commanding a bunch of starships? Well, now you can with the official Star Trek Starships collection. And here is how it works. You get not one, not three, but two ships a month. Some Federation, some Klingon, some, uh, some from other places. You'll get a magazine filled with production notes, design notes, and in-universe information about the ship. You'll get a digital download of that magazine so you can keep the magazine nice and wrinkle-free. And you get all that for $20 per ship. That's two ships a month, two magazines a month, two digital magazines a month, 40 bucks a month. Plus, you get extra surprises the longer you stay subscribed. And you can start your subscription at a crazy low price. Get the Enterprise 1701D, home to such wonderful characters as Marla Astor, Dead, Tasha Yar, Dead, and Minuet. Imaginary. Get the Enterprise D and its accompanying magazine for $4.95 to try it out. The address to do that is st-starships.com slash mission log. st-starships.com slash mission log. Trying out that not only supports this show, it makes you the commander of your own personal armada it's a peacekeeping armada ken that address again is st-starships.com slash mission log and a big thanks to eagle moss for supporting mission log that is so nice of them isn't it it is they're fans they're fans yes and, and we're, we're fans, fans of theirs, of theirs. And exactly and, yeah. and it's wonderful to have them along for the ride and to ride along with them hey a uh, mission log pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, or Twitter. And you say, why is he giving me that information? Well, in case you have information you want to give to us. Mission Log Pod is one way to do that on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. Now, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. Our phone number is 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, other places to leave comments, and all kinds of fun stuff is missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember that we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, I, I mentioned things trivial earlier, didn't I, John? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Will you please mention a lot more of them? Yeah, yeah, because it's no more trivial from here on out. All right. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> oy. Yeah. All right. So today's episode, Ethics, a story 
is by Sarah Charno and Stuart Charno. Now, we've mentioned them before that uh, Sarah, now Sarah Cooper, is a producer and Stuart is an actor. They collaborated before on Next Gen episodes New Ground and The Wounded. The teleplay is by Ronald D. Moore. He needs no introduction at this point. And it was directed by Chip Chalmers, and of course, Chip directed Captain's Holiday and two other Next Gen episodes. Now, we have some ship mentions here. We have the USS Potemkin, yet another use of the Excelsior model. I, I'm just assuming that those Excelsior-class <laughs> ships last forever in the future. Really well made. You may remember from Star Trek Three, they're hard to get going. Mm-hmm. But, but then but once, once you do, once they do, man, they just don't stop. Wind them up and just let them run. No. Yep. Now, we've heard about ships called Potemkin before. In the original series, you had an older class Potemkin, a Constitution class in the Ultimate Computer. The Ultimate Computer! <laughs> and in Next Gen, we had a mention of this one in Legacy and uh, Peak Performance. And you never know. Maybe some more to come. Uh, we also have a mention of the USS Denver, which was mentioned in the Kobayashi Maru scene in Star Trek II. Hmm. Now, yeah, um, we also, in this episode, we get a really nice look at that 1984 Bandai game pair match. I mentioned that before, the little triangular games that we see sitting on the tables in 10 Forward. Well, this time it's actually being played by Alexander and not just the table decoration. <laughs> Is he back to stealing? I, I think so. He just he sneaks <laughs> into 10 Forward and grabs, oh, no, it was mine the whole time. I had yep. it here in yep. my room. Yeah. Um, and there is a deleted scene from this episode. It, it comes right before Picard walks into sickbay and is going to visit uh, uh, Worf, and he's talking to Dr. Crusher. Well, right before that, we would have had a scene with Dr. Crusher talking to Worf about how she needs to run some tests just in case he changes his mind, and he's not going to. So maybe just a little extra padding there for what we already know is happening in the episode. So that one got cut out. Let's talk about guest stars. Now, we welcome back Brian Bonsall as Alexander, and we also have more of Patty Yasutake as Nurse Ogawa. We have Caroline Kava here as Dr. Toby Russell. Now, one of her early roles was in Michael Cimino's notorious Heaven's Gate and after that, she appeared in TV guest spots on Max Headroom, The Equalizer, Quantum Leap, L.A. Law, and The X-Files, and in the movies Year of the Dragon and Born on the Fourth of July. Now, slightly less obvious as a guest star is Al Foster, who appears as Worf in most of the surgery scenes. He's a photo double, so we don't see his face, but we see his back a lot. And we have another less obvious performer. We have Leon Rusty McLennan, who was Michael Dorn's stunt double starting in season three. There is a lot of Rusty in Star Trek, since there's a lot of Worf in action scenes. He stayed with production through their first feature film. He also performed stunts in Training Day, Gone in 60 Seconds, Predator 2, and one of my favorites, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka. Uh, Rusty passed away in 2015. Ethics, wherein we meet Russell, the terrible, Riker, the noble, and Geordi, the cheater. Prologue. 
Worf and Jordy are looking for some sort of leak in one of the cargo bays and arguing over the outcome of a poker game. Jordy says Worf should have called Counselor Troy on the hand. She was bluffing. Worf says no way he should have called. He didn't have the cards to back it up, and besides, Troy wouldn't bluff. But Jordy says he knows she did because he used his visor to peek at everyone's cards. Don't worry, he didn't do it until after the hand was over. Jordy wanders off to talk to some other people in the cargo bay when Worf is struck by tragedy. Actually, he's struck by a falling barrel. It leaves him unconscious. He wakes up in sickbay under the watchful eyes of Dr. Crusher and Nurse Agawa. Unable to stand, Worf assures Crusher that the restraining field is unnecessary. He promises not to leave sickbay, but there is no restraining field. Crusher says the barrel that hit Worf crushed his spine. He's paralyzed from the chest down, and his condition is permanent. Act 1. Welcome aboard Dr. Toby Russell. She thinks she may be able to help get Worf on his feet. Literally. Also, she's been reading some of Dr. Crusher's work. She's impressed and is looking forward to working with Beverly. She's also shocked at how little work there's been on Klingon neurological issues to this point. Turns out the Klingons would have just left someone in Worf's condition die. So, this will be a learning experience. Beverly has some suggestions for Dr. Russell on how to deal with Worf, but Dr. Russell doesn't want to deal with Worf. She'd rather deal with his condition and leave the actual talking to him and treating him like a person with personhood to Beverly. In sick bay, Riker stops by to see Worf. It's an attaboy, can't wait to see you on your feet kind of visit. This is not false hope Riker's offering. He's not heard that Worf's condition is believed to be permanent. Yeah, says Worf. Hey, by the way, I'd like for you to help me kill myself. More formally, I want you to assist me in performing the Hegba ceremony. When a Klingon can no longer stand and face his enemies as a warrior, when he becomes a burden to his friends and family, it is time for the Hekba. Time for him to die. Riker says there must be other options. The Warp says there are not. His life as a Klingon is over. Riker says he will not help a friend commit suicide. But Warp says, If you're really my friend, yes you will. You'll help me end my life as I have lived it, with dignity and honor. Act 2. Doctors Crusher and Russell are marveling at Klingon anatomy in general and Warp's condition in particular. Every vital system the Klingon body has, has a redundancy. It's called a brocklul, and I can't imagine that's going to be important later. Dr. Russell sees that as silly over-design. While redundant systems are a good idea in theory, in practice, it's just twice as much stuff that could go wrong. Speaking of things going wrong, nothing is helping Worf's recovery, though Dr. Russell has an idea. It involves removing Worf's spinal column, bones and all, growing him a new spinal cord, then putting it all back in. It's worked in hollow simulations, like 37% of the time, so we should try it on Worf. Yes, try it, because she's never tried this genotronic procedure on humanoids before. Beverly agrees that the potential is great, but... Mmm, no, Dr. Russell cannot experiment on Worf. They'll have to try something more conventional. It's then that Crusher is called to the bridge. The transport ship Denver has hit a gravitic mine left over from the Cardassian War. It's having to crash land, so the crew of 23 will need medical attention. Also, they're transporting 517 colonists. They'll need medical attention, too. Crusher will make ready. Commander Riker asks for a word with the captain. In private. So here's the thing. Worf wants me to help him kill himself, and I don't want to. He's not dead. He's not dying. He can live a full life. Yeah, says Picard, but not the kind of life he wants. 
He'd never walk again. It'll be a very unklingon life, and if there's one thing Worf wants to be, it's very Klingon. He asked you to help him because you're his friend. He knew he could count on you. So, off you go. Hey, remember Worf's kid? Yeah, so do the writers. Alexander is yelling at Counselor Troy. She says Worf is injured and doesn't want to see the kid, but the kid doesn't buy it. He thinks Troy is keeping them apart. So she explains again. Worf is injured, and he's embarrassed, and you seeing him would make him feel worse. Alexander recognizes this as more of that Klingon stuff. His mother always said Klingons had a lot of dumb ideas about honor, though Troy points out that that Klingon stuff is very important to Worf. But Alexander doesn't care about any of that. He just wants to see his dad. Bedtime for the boy, and Troy has gone to see Worf to explain to him how messed up this whole thing has left Alexander. Worf says it's an honor thing, and asks Troy to respect his wishes, though she says, right now, all she cares about is Alexander and his fear that he's going to lose his father. Maybe it's time Worf stopped lying there worrying about his honor and started thinking about someone else. Like his son. Saved by the whoosh, doctors Crusher and Russell enter with an idea for Worf, he can wear these electric bands on his legs that, in time, could give him back 60 to 70% of his mobility. He tries one. He hates it. He throws it across the room. He says he won't be some lurching, jerking object of ridicule. Crusher urges him to think about it, though Russell has something else for him to think about. There is this other thing we could try. It's called genetronic replication. It might regrow your spinal system. Might also kill you, but it might regrow your spinal system. Might also kill you, but it might regrow your spinal system. Might also kill Act you, three. but it might regrow your it spinal system. It is cold in Dr. Crusher's office. Or maybe that's just Dr. Crusher. She's upset with Russell. They decided not to offer the genetronic replication idea to Worf, but Russell defends her actions, saying Worf would rather die than use the electric bands. This is a better option than suicide. And if it works, it'll be huge for this type of medicine and for future recipients. Crusher says it's a false hope that Russell's offering. Instead of Worf dealing with his situation, he'll be thinking of this miracle cure. Russell is using Worf's desperation to try a procedure that Starfleet Medical has stopped her from doing three times before. Russell practically dares Crusher, though. Are you going to hide behind the rules of a bureaucracy? Worf's life is on the line. Crusher winds up for the comeback when, whoops, hold that thought. The Enterprise has found the Denver, and there are over 500 patients on the way to the ship. Russell offers to lend a hand, which Crusher accepts. In sick bay, Troy brings Alexander to see Worf. Worf, who's standing tall, wearing the electric bands. Alexander is confused, but glad to see his father. Worf starts to explain the difficult times ahead when the electric bands fail him. He falls to the ground and yells for his son to be sent away. In a converted cargo bay, the survivors of the Denver's hard landing are surviving. Well, all but this one guy. Dr. Russell says he didn't survive the treatment she administered. See, standard treatment number one wouldn't have worked, and standard treatment number two might have worked. But the experimental treatment she tried was really great. Or it would have been if it hadn't killed him. Still, she learned a lot from the experiment, so... Win-win. Minus one win for the dead guy. Yeah, you're experimenting with people on my ship, so you're done, says Dr. Crusher. 
Dr. Russell is relieved of medical anything while aboard the Enterprise. Act 4. Picard stops by to see Crusher. He's on his way to see Worf, but first, I hear you've relieved Dr. Russell of duty. I was thinking, why don't you let her do her experimental surgery on Worf? See, Worf will kill himself at some point. He completely cannot understand living a life that he sees as diminished. What he can understand is dying, trying something that may seem crazy to Crusher, but that could get him back to what he knows as normal. A Klingon may not be good at accepting defeat, says Picard, but he knows all about taking risks. It goes against everything Crusher holds dear. Her job is to make sure she does no harm, and this may kill him. Picard agrees. This may not be good medicine, but for Worf, it may be the only choice. Back in sickbay, Riker has stopped by to see Worf. So, I've been reading up on the Hekbah, and boy is it dumb. Cloaking suicide and nobility and honor. You just want me to bring you the knife and walk away so you can kill yourself in peace. Not gonna happen, though. Turns out a family member is supposed to do that. And you have one. Alexander, your son. Worf argues that he's a child, though Riker reminds Worf of Klingon law. The son of a Klingon is a man the day he can first hold a blade. If there were no other options, I'd help you kill yourself, even if it was against my will. But not only are there other options, I can't help you. You'll have to tell your son to bring you a knife, stab yourself in the heart with it, then trust that he'll remove it from your chest and wipe your blood on his sleeve. Riker cannot help Worf. There's only one person on the ship who can. Worf calls for Alexander. He explains to the boy that because of his injury, he, Worf, is supposed to kill himself. Good news, though, he's decided not to kill himself. Well, kind of. I'm having experimental surgery that may still leave me dead. Fingers crossed. Now please, take the ceremonial knife back to our quarters. And no running in the halls. Act 5. Mostly Act 5 is the surgery. There's a touching goodbye between Worf and Alexander beforehand, and a surprising request of Troy from Worf. If he dies, he'd like Deanna to raise Alexander. He can't imagine anyone who'd be a better parent to his son. Deanna says she'd be honored. Then it's surgery, worry, surgery, worry. The procedure seems successful, with a new spinal everything grown for Worf, and reinserted, and finally, Worf dies. Seriously. They try and try to revive him, but he's gone. Crusher delivers the bad news to Troy and Alexander, who demands to see his father. And so the boy is present when one of Worf's redundant systems kicks in. He's breathing. A quick shot of something, and something tells me he'll be as good as new by next week. Later... Dr. Russell stops by Crusher's office for a goodbye, maybe, a word of congratulations or thanks. Yeah, what she'll get instead is a stern talking to. You scare me. You're experimenting on people. Yeah, I'm glad Warp's going to be fine, but a lot of your patients end up less than fine. More sort of dead. You justify that in the name of research, but research takes time. You take shortcuts right through living tissue. You put your research ahead of your patients' lives, and as far as I'm concerned, that's a violation of our most sacred trust, so enjoy your accolades. Not sure I could. 
In a rehabilitation room, Worf is learning to walk under the watchful eyes of Crusher, Troy, and Alexander. He stumbles, and Alexander rushes to help him. Troy reminds the boy that Worf wants to do this alone, but Worf says he would like Alexander's help. They'll work together. The end. Oh, Ken. Oh, John. All right. So th- th- <laughs> th- th- this is this is the part where we always say, oh, Space Forks, isn't that funny? And Okay. There, there was a funny Space Fork in this episode, though. Was there? I, I totally forgot about the funny she Space Fork. She was completely using a funny Space Fork to put his spinal cord back into his spine. Oh, she was. It's yeah. more like a small barbecue tong, but still, mm-hmm. I can't help thinking, granted, I've never grown a spinal cord. Yeah. I don't know how they should be handled, but I'm thinking maybe not with, not with fork. forks. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Random idea. Yeah, I yeah. know. It's it's not it's not the most laugh out loud episode. No, no, I don't have a lot of funny observations about this one at all. But um, stick with me, kid. We'll see what we can. But do. here we go. <laughs> uh, first of all, Jordy uh, cheats at poker. Well, I mean, he he says he doesn't, but he yeah. totally can. So you just have to trust him. No, no, no. He actually cheats at poker. He cheats at poker. Okay. This is still cheating yeah. because here's the thing: you have to pay to see what somebody had in their hand. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the deal. And if you're not willing to pay, if you're not willing to go ahead and ride the whole thing out. You don't get to know whether that other person was bluffing. So oh, yeah, right, Jordy is right. now learning everybody's tells because he can see whether they were cheating or not. Oh, and and, and his, his lesson to Worf is, you should bring cards I can't see through. Uh, really? Jordy, you're the worst. He's, he's the a terror. He should not be allowed to play. Next episode no. should start with him having a meeting of everybody. And they all ceremonially, like, or ceremoniously, or ceremonially, turn their back at the poker table on Jordy. <laughs> no, I just thought if they let Worf go through with the Klingon ritual, he would like have his friends there. He'd have the knife in his hands. They'd ask, "Do you have any last words?" Jordy cheats at poker. Uh, you know. Exactly. <laughs> that would be it. Yeah. Wiper blade on that. <laughs> right. So. Um, we did learn, according to Riker, that uh, sickbay food is worse than the other food they got on the Enterprise, which I thought was all coming from the same replicator. <laughs> Unless you go to a replicator and just say, no, make the bad stuff. Okay. This is going to sickbay. Here's what I'll tell you. Uh-huh. So I had to stay in the hospital for a week when I was in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And in the hospital, I had the best bowl of cream of mushroom soup I've ever had in my entire life. Wow. To the point that when I had to go visit a doctor like a month later at the same hospital, <laughs> yeah. I stopped by the uh, I stopped by the cafeteria <laughs> and got the same soup. Not the same. Oh, not the man. same. Yeah, the soup that I got in the cafeteria was terrible. Wow. Now maybe it's because I nearly well, I never actually found out whether I nearly died or not. But you know, okay. I'd, I'd had sort of a rough go of it in the hospital. Yeah. And so maybe that soup was just extra special good because, hey, I'm eating. Maybe. Or maybe they just thought, like, he's not going to make it. Just melt an extra stick of butter in that soup. <laughs> just make it good it could be it. Yeah, fatty and creamy. And- We're giving him the crappy soup, right? No, no, no. He gets the good soup. <laughs> oh. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of speaking of how things were going for Wharf, by the way, mm-hmm. in the hospital, that was over twenty years ago. By the way, that was okay, a long yeah. time ago. Yeah. So we can make fun of it. Yeah. Probably fine now. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You'll help me end my life, he says to Riker, as I have lived it with dignity and honor, and immediately assuming that the best thing I could possibly do is kill something, <laughs> even if it's himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, he dies as he lived, drawing a phaser immediately. 
on whatever the other thing was. <laughs> right. Even if, right. as you say, the other thing was, in fact, the same thing. <laughs> right. Um, interesting idea, all the evolutionary redundancy in the, in the Klingon body. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as you foreshadowed, it might have something to do with the end of the episode. um, (laughs) Eight-chambered heart. What were the odds that that was going to come back? I know that the one time we mention it, that uh, that it would come up. Yeah, crazy. Hey, uh, we got an email from somebody who asked if it was even considered to have Dr. Pulaski to come back for this episode. So Mm -hmm. rather than Dr. Russell, you'd have Dr. Pulaski. I, I think that is kind of a brilliant idea. I mean... If you're going to have a guest star come back who is a doctor who is known, mm-hmm. um, and we don't know anything about Russell at all, um, but we just got you know a taste of Pulaski in season two, and and why not kind of complete that circle? Why not kind of bookend it with something about Pulaski? Do you end up liking Russell at the end of this? No, I would say that's the reason. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, you're going to hate Pulaski at the end of this. I understand a lot of people hated Pulaski anyway, but yeah, yeah. there have been a number of people who've written to us who said since we actually went back and re-examined season two that they actually came to like Pulaski a bit more. They hated her mm-hmm. when they first watched it, mm-hmm. and first watching it is what a lot of people did. But now going back and actually looking at her, comparing her to Bones, contrasting her with Crusher, she's a better character. And and this would have just, I mean, that she would, she would have been a reprehensible character at the end of this episode, and justifiably so. Yeah. Well, I, and I, I get it that, you know, Russell is played kind of one note in mm-hmm. this. We, we are supposed to hate her at the end of this. I think it would have made the the ethics, to coin a phrase there, I think it would have mm-hmm. made the ethics of the episode a little more nuanced, a little grayer, if it's somebody that we know something about and are kind of pulling for. But I do take your point that, she was not well-liked by at least a certain segment of the audience already going into it. Um, I don't know. It, it would have been written differently if it were her, I True. think. Yeah. True. It, this kind of goes, though, and I know uh, Gene Roddenberry had passed on at this point, although I don't know if this script was actually being written while he was still around, maybe making some sort of suggestions. But it would have, I mean, it's sort of like the reason that we got Valeris instead of Savick in Star Trek Six, right? Yeah, right. Savick had been a good guy. We're not going to yeah. turn her into a bad guy. Pulaski, even if she was a flawed character in the views in the in the minds of the viewers, um, was not a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And and Russell is definitely being presented as a bad guy. So yeah. I mean, I just I yeah, it's a neat idea. The other thing though is it would sort of um, wow, really, we get a new admiral every week, but there are only like three doctors. <laughs> right, <laughs> right in the Federation. Right. It'd be Doctor Solar, uh, well, and, and uh, uh, the black guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was mm-hmm. on a few weeks ago, whose name I can't remember now, because he's on one episode yeah. and that's it. I liked right. him. I thought, right. oh, good, yeah. finally, a second Doctor for the Enterprise, because Doctor Solar is never anywhere. Right. And it turns out she's still not. Can't find her. Um, I, I like how Riker, the, the timing of the scene is funny. I like how Riker just walks into sick bay with a giant Klingon knife, <laughs> because it's right after Picard at least stopped by to tell Beverly that he was going to go visit Worf. And if he had just come down there to confront Worf about having Alexander kill him, then the knife was a good dramatic touch. But if there was any hint in Riker's mind that he was coming down there with that knife to actually go through with this, like it might actually happen, then I'm sorry, but, you know, Picard could have stepped in there like a minute before and just like, oh, oh, I was here to talk. You're here. Oh, you have a knife. Oh, okay. 
I'll leave, <laughs> you know? Yeah. A couple, yeah. couple of things on that really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Was was Picard maybe not a little too enthusiastic about everybody letting Worf kill himself? Uh, yeah. It, <laughs> or even helping him? I, I, I'm sure we'll talk about it again, but I think the cultural sensitivity might have gone a little far in Picard. Uh, just, but, yeah. well, a little, I mean, just like, like, you know, so Riker shows up and he's like, so listen, Worf wants me to let him kill himself or help him kill himself. And Picard's like, oh, wow, you should totally do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Go to it, man. Right. Yeah. And then he goes to yeah. Crusher later. He's like, look, seriously, he's going to kill himself. He just is. I mean, mm-hmm. so, you know. Play fast and loose with this one because you know he's he, he's going to die. He he is he is one okay. way or another by the end exactly of this episode. Right. Man, <laughs> yeah, alive. Um, you yeah. like the fact that Riker just kind of shows up in Sigbay with the big knife. I mm-hmm. love the fact that Worf just sends. How old is Alexander? Eight. Well, he, he looks he looks like he's eight or ten, but if yeah. you go by the actual timeline of the show, he's like he's, three, he's four. Right. You know, right? <laughs> Either way, though, even if he's ten, I mean, it's like yeah. so. Just send him back there with the big knife, and the kid's kind of walking with the knife out, not like lunging mm-hmm. at somebody, but and you know, and that's safety. He's right. not walking with it really close, so if he trips, probably he's going to be able to drop the knife. But I just thought about like you know. Is there like another 10-year-old coming the other way with a chainsaw that his father said, take that back to where you found it, son? He's right. Like, do people just like, is there like a whole corridor for kids walking around with weapons on the Enterprise? <laughs> well, there, there may not be, but I'll tell you, uh, an 8-year-old Klingon with a knife is a good way to make the guy in khakis to get out of your way. That's true. That's absolutely true. You mentioned that, you know, it seems like there's only three doctors ever in Starfleet. Well, mm-hmm. uh, in this, we, we have a callback to Marla Astor. Yeah. We have a callback to Tasha Yar. Yeah, and we, we have two people that we just don't know at all. Yeah. We have uh, Fang Li and Sandoval. Yeah. Yeah. So we named four people who have died on the Enterprise in yeah. five years. You know, not to mention <laughs> all the others who haven't right. been named. All those mm-hmm. countless yellow shirts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There would yeah. be yellow shirts here, wouldn't there? Would they be red shirts here as well? Mostly yellow, I think, but I'm sure a few red have been killed. Um, I thought, you know, Deanna should really not be surprised at all about being asked to raise Alexander because literally everyone on the <laughs> ship has to raise everyone else we have ever seen. Mm. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, young Jeremy Astor is still being raised by somebody who is not his parents on yes, board. nor and, Worf, uh, oddly enough. Yeah, right. They're bonded. They're bonded, <laughs> but... That only goes so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I do have to say that I really like that scene of Riker and Picard sitting across the table from each other in the ready room waiting for the results of Worf's surgery. It's really on the nose, like, it's about the subtext of the scene, but you don't even have to say it's about the subtext of the scene. It's just there in front of you that these are two guys doing everything they can to not be worried about the guy who's undergoing really invasive surgery. It's shot well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dark. It's somber. It's a yeah. nice moment. See, that one to me was a little over the top. Yeah. The one that I really liked, though, was the one where... Um, Alexander's playing with the thing that he stole from Ten Ford. <laughs> yes, right. And Deanna is yeah. looking at him. And and I, I talked last week about how great it was to see Marina Sirtis be able to play a character that was, you know, completely different. Somebody that goes toe to toe with uh with Picard. Yeah. I this was this was a very strong Troy scene to me. And mm-hmm. nothing almost nothing is happening except, you know, the kids just looking at the game and she's looking at Alexander. 
but it's obvious she's not looking at Alexander. She is potentially looking at the next 10 to 12 years of her life, plus the rest of her life after that, because just because he won't still right. be, you know, in her charge doesn't mean at that point he won't, for all intents and purposes, be her child. Yeah. And nothing is said. She doesn't touch him. But mm-hmm. I, the second or third time that I watched the episode this week, I, I th- that particular 10, 15 seconds maybe mm. just really hit me. Because I think the yeah. first time I was like, he doesn't even look like he's playing that game. I, I was actually yeah. <laughs> concentrating on the game. And then the second time yeah. I was like, okay, so it was the third time. It was the third time I watched it that, that I was just looking at her face, looking at his. Mm-hmm. And that to me was a much better scene than, I mean, it almost felt like a, like a, like a Bergman film or something, what was going on between between uh, Riker and uh, Picard. Like, you know, yeah, the extreme yeah. close-up of one face, the extreme close-up of another face. You're right, it's obvious what's happening, but it's almost too obvious. Whereas there was this this subtle thing happening with uh, with Troy and Alexander that I thought was actually beautiful. Yeah, very true. Yeah, there were a lot of good moments throughout this, a lot of good acting yeah, in this episode. Yeah. Um, and another thing we learned in this episode, Klingons have ridges Everywhere. Um, <laughs> it was kind of funny to me, though, because I, I wondered how much of that was decided beforehand. Like, we, we had this transition going into Star Trek, the motion picture. We've got more budget. We, we've got a makeup crew, and we can make the Klingons look cool and more menacing. And who cares about continuity and canon? Let's just do it because it'll look awesome. And they have this ridge that goes over their foreheads and presumably the rest of their head and kind of maybe a little bit down their back. So in this, mm-hmm. we see the back. But I wondered... Early on, when they decided that this is what Klingons would look like from now on, did they assume, well, they've just got ridges everywhere? Or was this a last-minute decision for this episode where they look at the script and they go, oh, okay, we have to see Worf's back. Oh, and we're also going to see his feet. We just got to make it look alien somehow. Just put, put ridges on there. Make him look even more like a Klingon. I hate how nerdy this makes me, but I'm mm-hmm. going to go there. Okay, we, do it. We've seen some of the stuff that they wear before, and there's something that happens on the stuff that they have on their backs in the past. Yeah. It makes me think the ridges were always meant to be there. Yep. The feet just make no sense to me at all. Because yeah, then I, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't he have those on his hands as well? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. The, but the, I, I thought that the, the Klingon costumes where you have like that kind of metal spine on the yes. outside, then that totally makes sense. Because that is protecting you your spine. Protective armor right, right. there yes. for your, you know, double spine that can grow back and do all this cool <laughs> stuff. Um, but yeah, but the, the feet, I kept thinking that that's just a lot of extra flesh that'll get caught in a zipper. <laughs> Fun fact A taste of Pulaski is not just what people got in season 2 of Next Gen. It was also the name of Dr. Pulaski's subspace access cooking show. Call your subspace programming provider and ask for A Taste of Pulaski. Okay, Ken. I opened last segment saying that there was nothing funny about this episode, and yet we made it through with a, with a handful of light moments, but here's where it gets serious. So th- this episode is full of heavy stuff, and, and I, I picked out maybe two or three big topics that I thought were, were worthy of discussion. I, I don't even know where to begin. I just have to begin somewhere, <laughs> because mm-hmm. there's a lot of heavy stuff to digest here. Um, you know, one thing that I thought about early in this episode was 
the the similarity that we had with Troy in the loss. Um, just dealing with her reaction to losing her empathic powers and then watching the reactions of other people around her as she processes that. And I know that that was an episode where people kind of, uh, you know, reacted strongly to her reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't just mean within the context of the show. I mean, viewers of the show reacted strongly to how it was written that Deanna would deal with it. And I ultimately came down just on the side of saying, you know what? She's going to react however she's going to react. And and we might look at it from our perspective as being a little too over the top or, or what have you. But it's her right. It's her right to react how she's going to react. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought similarly here, you know, Worf has every right to react how he's going to react. But like Deanna, he's also got friends on board who are going to help him. And they're going to be a sounding board. And they're going to course correct him when he wants something unreasonable. And so just like Deanna's friends around her tried to kind of course correct and say, well, well, look, you can do this and you can be helpful here and we will work through this. Worf's got to expect the same thing out of the people around him. So that all kind of leads to this central theme that, that I think pops up in Star Trek over and over again. And, and that's the respect for cultural difference and and ultimately i thought well how far do we let it go before we push back if it means making bad decisions you mentioned before you know picard seems just positively okay <laughs> with with what's going on here and and even says to Riker, well i can't help you make your choice You've got to do this. This is all on you. And yeah, I'll probably miss Worf. He, he was great to have a security officer, but he's made his decision. Mm-hmm. Now, Riker says the idea of ritual suicide is ridiculous. And Picard says we have to respect Worf's beliefs. And I agree. I, I agree with Picard that beliefs must be respected. But I more so come down on the side that the individual holding the belief needs to be respected, but that ridiculous ideas need to be ridiculed. If they are ridiculous, they are worthy of ridicule, and and they don't necessarily need to be respected or absorbed. Um, you know, Worf has tradition. He has at least some understanding of Klingon tradition, but Worf, as we love to point out, was not raised by Klingons. He's sort of patching it together as he goes along. And Worf is this great example, this great exploration of somebody trying to find themselves and and piece together their own identity, um, regardless of cultural context. He, he's got to do the work on his own. He has just sort of attached himself to his version of what being a Klingon means regardless of the fact that for most of his life he was raised by this nice Eastern European couple, and he could have gone the other way and just become a nice old European man who, you know, enjoys things like borscht. Yes. <laughs> but he decides to, to not be that guy, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I like the idea that there's a debate around his decisions. I like the idea that Riker at least is so worked up about this. Um, Maybe if this episode were a half an hour longer, (laughs) maybe if there was another few scenes missing, I would have liked to have seen that debate a little more between him and Picard. 
but I felt like it was very short. They just kind of got it out of the way. We got to deal with Riker a little bit more, so I, I more so appreciated that scene with Riker really confronting Worf. Here's Worf literally on his deathbed, <laughs> and and Riker saying, no, I, I don't like what you're saying. I don't yeah. like what you're standing for at this point. Um, and I also, in this episode, I feel particularly bad for Alexander, who I think we're meant to feel bad for throughout, not only at the prospect of losing Worf, but he has again and again been snubbed by Worf. Um, Worf's ready to create another orphan. He, he's, he's been through it himself, although he has a loving family, and he, he recognizes that they're old, and it would be hard for them to take care of Alex, Alexander for years to come. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, they've actually turned the job down at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, but, Dave you know, said they're too old. He's, it's not even him saying that. It's, I mean, Dave, Dave said it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Worf, uh, Worf was there when Kalar died. And he knows how hard this is and how terrible this is for Alexander. We saw his bad fatherhood skills revealed before. And now it just seems like this is, well, you know, the knife going in again for, you know, an apt metaphor. So it's a a challenging episode for for all of those reasons and and more to come. Yeah, well, I mean, he actually ends up being a good father and and Alexander ends up being a good son. He does. He does get there. Yeah, there are a few things I'll say about, like, just everything that you just said. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I, I mentioned it earlier. I mean, there are things here that Picard does that, on the one hand, seem like cultural sensitivity and awareness, but on the other hand, almost seem to show a lack of faith in Worf. Hmm. I mean, he says uh, to Riker, you and I could learn to live with a disability like that, but not Worf. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, on the one hand, he's saying, look, Worf wants to be a Klingon, and this is not how he views being a Klingon, so he's never going to be happy, so he's going to kill himself, so you might as well help him. At the same time, though, Riker is a better friend to Worf, um, and and you, you almost wonder if there's something mystical. I don't like the whole mystical idea, but you almost wonder mm-hmm. if there's something mystical about the fact, because I couldn't figure out, uh, so so uh, Picard has been Worf's chadich. Right. Yeah. Uh, Picard has been Worf's um, consigliere. He's been his lawyer. He's been his defender before the Klingon High Council. Mm-hmm. And, and Riker has stood beside Worf, and Riker has served on a Klingon ship before. But I mean, they don't have the kind of closeness that he and Picard have. But of course, he had to ask Riker because the way Picard's written, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Worf would have said, "I need you to help me kill myself," and Picard was like, "Okay, well, I got a knife here, but do you want this knife or do you want like another knife? Okay, I'll right. be back in five minutes. Don't right. let anybody, whatever. Right. We'll get this done." Yeah. I did love the line when Riker said, um, "There's only one person on this ship who can help you." Mm-hmm. Uh, or no, he, say, he says, "I can't help you. There's only one person on the ship who can." Letter of the law, he obviously means Alexander, because by Klingon law, Alexander is the only one who is able to aid in the Hekba. Right. But, I mean, really, Alexander is the only one who's able to snap Worf out of it. Yes. It's, it's, it's seeing Alexander. What's well, thinking about Alexander the first time. Okay, my son's going to come see me. I'm going to put on the electric bands and be able to stand here. Mm-hmm. And he's giving him the speech that he gives him at the end about it's going to take a lot of work, but we're going to, oh, and then things get tough. And so he falls down and he sends the kid away. Mm-hmm. And again, now he's ready to end it as long as, as long as he doesn't have to see him, as long as he doesn't really have to think about it. And Riker's like, yeah, that's what you want. You want me to hand you a knife and then turn and look the other way while you kill yourself. And I'm not going to make it that simple. 
there is one person who can do this and it is your son, which means there's one person who can talk you out of it and it's your son. Yeah. And that to me was actually a wonderful thing. Now, why it was written that it was Riker, I don't know. Because it could have been Picard and honestly, it should have been Picard. But I'm okay with it being Riker as well. I mean, Riker has a tenacity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Picard also has that tenacity. I'm not sure. I, but he, he wasn't written that way in this episode, though, which is... Picard? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and maybe the other half of it is Picard just going, man, I'm glad he didn't ask me. Cause <laughs> right. I got a ship to run, and we got to pick up the Denver, and there's just two. Right. Yeah. Whoo. Right. Boy, yeah. I wouldn't want to be you this week, number one. <laughs> anyway, yeah. toodles. Doctor, exactly how messy will it be? Uh, because <laughs> <laughs> we do have this other group coming in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. By the way, 500 people coming up will convert cargo bays because Worf has this entire sick bay. Right, right, right. I'm just saying. That, you know, there's, yeah. Weren't there actually other beds in that room? Mm, no? Okay. Yeah, no. Anyway. Yeah, yeah right. it's a little, a little strange. Could, could be. Just saying. I mean, it's now, good. Where are they keeping the shuttles? <laughs> right, right. Okay. It's good that... Um, well, I mean, Worf can be manipulated a little bit by laws. That's good. He he is so fundamentalist in his Klingon beliefs that you can throw that in his face and he'll, oh, gosh, you're right. I, I have to actually follow that. So I, I would think the other Klingons might not be so easy to manipulate when it came down to something like that. Aren't we all brothers? Give me the knife. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Um, so another big theme in this episode is about right to die. Um, mm-hmm. And I did a little bit of research to kind of place this in historical context because I couldn't remember exactly. And and then I kind of pieced it together. This was about a year after Dr. Jack Kevorkian started becoming a name in the press. So, you know, and for those who don't remember at the time, but in the late 80s, uh, Dr. Kevorkian was an advocate for a patient's right to die and, and his premise was based around the idea of assisted suicide, giving the patient some ability to control their their way of their death. But he being a doctor, he could be there to make sure that it was humane and effective. Now, in about 1990, I think it was 1990 or early 91, this episode came out in early 92, that was when the first of the major lawsuits was brought against him. And and that really kind of kicked off this national debate at the time about right to die. Um, and, and that's at least sort of not to say that debate hasn't happened before or since. Um, but I remember it being a thing at the time that, that there were, you know, national magazine front page stories about him and about this idea and, and people debating this idea. Um Now, what I thought was interesting here is that we clearly are trying to build up sympathy for Worf, but we're also very effectively presenting the other side of the argument by Riker. But at the center of all of this is this child. Mm -hmm. And I I thought Alexander had this great line. You just absolutely feel terrible. More so for me in this episode than before with Alexander. Alexander tells... Deanna, I don't care about being Klingon. I just want to see my father, which is such a simple line that absolutely cuts to the chase about what this whole thing is about. Once again, Worf putting his Klingon fundamentalism 
above being a real person. And he failed before by preaching at Alexander. And that's what it was, is sort of like preaching at him about honor. You know, here, here here's what this means, and here's what honor is. So I'm going to shove all this down your throat. You understand? Okay, I believe you understand. I'm moving on. I guess we're done here, <laughs> you know? Right. And, uh, and then he, he's off to work again. But, but clearly, since then, that has not been nearly as important to Alexander as just having a relationship with his father. So I found that so much of that was very heartbreaking. And, and this episode very effectively put the personal stories and the personal stakes about everything front and center above just simply the the kind of political or ethical or social controversy around what was going on. And you could argue, I mean, you could argue that war feels the same way in the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is supposed mm-hmm. to kill himself. That's that's, you know, whether that's old Klingon law or current Klingon law or whatever that is. I mean, he's supposed to to the point that he tells his son, listen, I'm supposed to die now. But um, because you are, I'm not gonna. Mm -hmm. And that's I mean, it really is. I mean, you're right. It's it's tragic that that Alexander has to sit through it. But it's great that he was there to sit through it. Otherwise, we'd be looking for a new security officer next week. Right. Right. Now, let's talk about. Dr. Russell. Um, my, my first note here is Dr. Russell is horrendous. <laughs> um, and, and we are meant to believe that. And, and they do a very good job of building the case about what is right with her and what is wrong with her. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, in her defense, there is a lot to be said about thinking outside the box and, and blazing a bold new path I feel like if this were the original series, if Dr. McCoy had some crazy idea, they would just try it out because he knew it would work in the end. Kirk would be like, oh, you're going to put a new spine in Spock? Go right ahead. Do it because you're the doctor and I trust you. Actually, two words, Spock's brain. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Spock's brain is – oh, there's his brain. I can just put it back in. Don't worry. (laughs) Right, right. Um, You know, I'm glad that we had that scene with her with a patient dying under her care because it it illustrated the stakes of what she's doing. They needed to contrive that in this episode. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't have, I think, felt the stakes going into the the surgery with Worf. And you wouldn't have felt more acutely what Dr. Crusher's resistance was to this. So that, that was a nice bit of writing to fit that in. Little bonk bonk on the head, but but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kept thinking we kind of have this thing today, uh, not exactly like this, but you know we do have people in this world who make wild medical claims and are rightfully shunned by the medical establishment, and then they go on to do their own thing anyway. And most often, not always, but most often to detrimental effect to their patients. Um, Dr. Crusher makes the case that medical and scientific progress is slow and steady, if done right. And at least the way it is done today, it's thousands of people working in labs to make sure that the building blocks of our medical knowledge is correct. And it's not one person with a crazy idea who just decides to do it on their own. Um, I like the argument that Russell makes to Beverly about using baratheum that one day could save someone she loves. But I also like that Beverly shuts her down. You know, that you're throwing a hypothetical in my face, 
but what you did was just kill somebody to get there, you know, yes. for, for a potential. It, this is a fabulous episode for uh, for weighing out the medical ethics. Hey, I, I guess we know how they came to the title of the episode. <laughs> um, weighing out these 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 pros and cons about how science is done, how medicine is done. Uh, the the arguments are good and they're believable. Even if Dr. Russell is pretty much purely the bad guy of the episode, there's something about her in her earnestness that is believable. She wants mm-hmm. to be right. And she wants to help, but she's going about it in absolutely the worst way possible. Could she have said at any point the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and justified what she was saying? Hmm. Because that's what I kept thinking. Look, in the end, mm-hmm. I come mm-hmm. down to eh, 75% of the time she's reprehensible. We'll talk about yeah. the other 25% of the time in a moment. But sure. I thought about that one guy there yeah. who died. And she says that she's gotten good results from Baratheon before. And 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 she says, and I learned a lot, you know, mm-hmm. so it's going to be great because uh, this is going to help so many more people down the road. And Crusher says, well, that's not really going to be much help to his family. And I'm thinking, OK, but what about a whole planet full of people that might get saved by Baratheon one day? Yeah. And I'm not say- look, I'm not saying it's right. I did find myself wondering, though, it puts it, it puts it in an interesting conundrum because you're right. You see that guy under that sheet. And Beverly says, and what about his family? And yeah. all of those things are true. And yet, she's a reprehensible character. I get that. I'm not justifying it. Had she said, this one person died that thousands of others might live one day? Yeah, but it's a big might. It, 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 well, it is a big might. It, yeah. it is a big might. But let's say she kills five people and it ends up saying 50,000 down the road. Do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few in this case? Yeah, but that's not I mean, there's, how we, there's a yeah. weird... There's a, I understand what you're saying, and yeah, I don't yeah. think you're wrong. And yeah. yet it's it's weird to have this thing that we've always said, oh, that's such a great ideal, sort of turned on its head. Because, mm-hmm. you know, assuming she's any kind of doctor at all. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> she's never going to kill as many people as she's eventually going to save. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying as I'm watching it, I'm like, sure. so the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few lots of times, but not every time because – She's wrong and crazy. <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, ultimately, there is a question about consent. Now, Worf may very yeah. well have said, yeah, let's do this. I, I want to <laughs> I, I want to do this process that has a very low probability of success. But yeah. the guy from the Denver had no choice in the matter. And his family had That's no true. choice in the matter. Nobody had an opportunity. Even Dr. Crusher didn't get the consultation from Dr. Russell to say, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. How does she find out? Oh, what happened here? Oh, he died. Oh, really? From like mm-hmm. standard medical procedure. Oh, standard medical oh, procedure. We're doing that, today. that might've been, yeah. yeah, I guess maybe he could have. <laughs> uh, okay. See what's interesting. I didn't mean to bring up the whole, it, it did occur to me through the episode. I decided that no needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few does not apply here. And yet I couldn't help but bring it up when you mentioned it because no, I, it, I think it's, it's legitimate. Yeah. Well, except I don't want, I really don't want those emails. And, and well, not, because, not because I don't want to read the email, but because that's not where I am on it. It was just something that kept sort of presenting itself to me throughout the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the episode does a good job of presenting this idea that, you know, even if this person is behaving unethically, even if this person is, you know, potentially endangering others, there's still that chance. And and we as human beings, we like to hold on to that one possibility, that one glimmer of hope, which makes medical quackery so awful and so prevalent. 
<laughs> you know, it really is. Yeah, the the, no, the people who the people who peddle these completely BS, you know, cancer remedies and stuff that aren't a thing, but they can make billions of dollars doing it because people want that hope. Yeah. And that is an unethical thing to do. And again, people's hearts, some of them might be in the right place to say, I think I'm helping somebody. But without those processes being vetted, without going through rigorous control, then we're just we're, we're shooting in the dark. Yeah. I want to really quickly, I want to talk about the other 25 percent, the 25 mm-hmm. percent of the time where Russell is not necessarily a terrible, terrible person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know. Being a Southerner, I'll do it in story. Okay. <laughs> a little over a year ago as we record this, um, it looked like there was something seriously wrong with my dad. Mm. Um, and his doctor had actually uh, called for a bone marrow biopsy. And had the results gone poorly, it would likely have meant you know months or years of painful procedures, and who knows how they would have ended. Yeah. And so my dad declined uh, the bone marrow biopsy because, as he put it, I'm 71 years old, and I don't want to put my body through that. Now, luckily, the call for the biopsy proved unnecessary, and my dad is actually fine today. He is as healthy today as he was two years ago this time. So last summer was bad, but it it turns out the thing, you know, wasn't a thing that he needed. But but when we thought it was a thing he needed, and he said he wasn't going to put his body through it, I, I will be honest, I understood his desire to not go the way that that doctor recommended, because it's not how he wanted to spend his life. It's not how he wanted to live his life. Mm-hmm. He's definitely got fewer years ahead of him than he has behind him, and he doesn't want to spend them all in a hospital. And and that's his choice. And it, you know, I had a lot of trouble dealing with it, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just my thing to deal with. Yeah. So bringing it back to the episode of Star Trek, Beverly doesn't think that Russell's procedure is going to work for Worf. She wants Worf instead to come to terms with his condition. And Picard says, well, he's he's going to off himself at some point. And Crusher says, no, tell you what. I'm going to keep him here. I'm going to keep him here. I'm going to keep him <laughs> locked up. I'm going to keep guards outside because he's going to be well whether he wants to be well or not. He's going to deal with the the state that he's in currently. Because she knows that Worf will go for Russell's 37% chance at success. 37% in a holograph, uh, hologram, by the way. Or a holodeck, yeah. I suppose. Holodeck, yeah. Which, which, by the way, you get to tell holodecks to do whatever you want. Right. So if you're still only <laughs> hitting 37%, Mm. Mm. Yeah, it really is risky. Uh, So she refuses to let Russell offer this thing to Worf, or she wants to refuse to let uh, Russell offer this thing to Worf. Of course, Russell goes ahead and does it anyway. Is this not an imposition of Crusher's will on Worf at that point? Yeah, well, that's where we circle back around to the right to die argument. You know, does... Or the right to do something crazy if, if, you know, the other option is something that you don't want to do. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, this this is the medical quackery thing you're talking about, except it's right. not because quackery is quackery. This is this is more like, well, this is experimental procedure. Is exactly yeah, it, what it it's is. Un- untested, untried. Yeah, it, it is. It is a theory. Yes. You know, and uh, having not been in that position, I, I I don't know the 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 feeling of wanting to try the untried, untested thing that has a very low success rate. But there might just be that one possibility, that one chance, as opposed to doing the thing that is safe and tested, but in its own way may not be perfect. But we're also dealing with Worf's pride here. You know, as Picard likes to point out, Worf is different from you or me. 
mm-hmm. uh, regarding him and, and Riker when they're having that conversation. So Worf's perspective on this is not that he had an accident and he'll have to adapt. His perspective is that his life is over. You know, we didn't have that conversation when Troy lost her abilities. Right. Because she never expressed it that way. She she was torn up, you know. Um, she was absolutely destroyed over it. But we knew that at some point she would find her way. Worf is just saying, like, I am no longer me. I no longer have purpose. I, I can no longer be seen. It, it's so tragic to hear him say that he won't be seen in a corridor as a half-Klingon machine. Yeah. You know, just assuming that he would be an object of ridicule by others. So... I'm just going to say that I think Worf needs a little more counseling after this <laughs> incident. I'm glad he's yes. okay, but I think he uh, I think he needs to get his head in the right place too. From the as seen on subspace access catalog, a taste of Pulaski, the book, Pulaski pierogies, page twenty three. Kathy's Cookies, page 47. From hors d'oeuvres, to main courses, to delicious desserts, A Taste of Pulaski, the book, is your replicator's best friend. Call the number on your screen. Operators are standing by. Well, John, I gotta say, a surprising number of laughs. (laughs) For the episode Ethics. I wonder if that's like a gallows humor thing. Do you think that's what it is? Do you think we just like, it's like so dark that it's I'm like... I'm laughing well, through the tears. Yeah, yeah. you gotta laugh, because if mm-hmm. you don't, yeah. Time now to figure out the messages, morals, and meanings of the episode Ethics, and whether or not the whole episode stands the test of time. I will throw it to you, Mr. Champion. Um, ethics. Does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Yeah, well, but before I give my answer, I will just say that today's episode was specifically for the person on our website who said that sometimes we, we take these too seriously. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, does the episode hold up? Well, I, I think it holds up marvelously well. It is a bit of soap opera. Um, and we've talked about how Next Gen is different from TOS in that respect. There's a bit more of a soap opera style of storytelling here because we've got, well, we've got more of a a main cast, a little more of an ensemble than the old cast, and we're telling different kinds of stories, and we've got the luxury of time to do it. Um, Storytelling in the 80s and 90s was different from the way it was in the 60s. So the the whole feel is going to be different, and we'll have these soap opera-ish stories. But at the heart of this, you also have some intriguing ethical dilemmas that Star Trek is really good at tackling. Mm -hmm. I like how half the show is about Worf and about the right to die. And I like how there's another half of the show that's about medical ethics, what we can actually do and what we can't do. Um, It's really tricky for a show like this to have emotional weight when you endanger a character that you know is coming back next week. We've talked mm-hmm. about that before. Yeah. But they handled this really well. And even though you know at the last moment, well, they're not really going to kill off Worf. Even then, um, it's not just that emotional punch that was Worf's death. And, and I put that in quotes because that part was handled very well. Seeing the tears on Dr. Crusher's face when she's telling Alexander about that is really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um 
But the other emotional punch in the gut in this is the reconciliation at the end with Alexander. Oh, it's it's so kind of, again, just bonk, bonk on the head. It's so on the nose. It's so obvious. But it's so well done because mm-hmm. this episode does a good job of making you pull for Worf and making you pull for Alexander. So to have that moment and to have Worf say, we'll do this together as a, a, a emotionally reaching his son Absolutely fantastic. I, I found myself choked up many times watching this because they had effectively uh, gotten the characters under my skin. Yeah. You know, it, it, and like I said, that that's hard to do because in any other context, it would just be the tension of will this character make it or not. <laughs> in this, we don't have that because we know that right. Worf will be okay. Right. Now, in another way of telling the story, maybe you would actually have Worf, you know, in a wheelchair for a few weeks, or maybe you'd have him struggling for weeks and weeks for months to come. Um, I haven't watched that far ahead, so we'll find out. <laughs> but <laughs> That seems really likely, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, but I like that they use the characters effectively in this for, for something that otherwise would have just been like the dilemma of the week. It didn't play like that. It, it played better than that. So, uh, yeah, it absolutely holds up. And how about you? Yeah. So I find myself in sort of an interesting place here. You say that it plays as a soap opera. And I can kind of see that. And yet, and I've had, a, I've had a, especially if we've got, as we've gone further into season five, I've had an issue that we're getting more into character development than we are getting into ethical dilemmas. Mm-hmm. And yet, despite the fact that, yes, we're dealing with, you know, Worf's parenting uh, issues, we're dealing with the fact that Alexander may be an orphan again, what we are dealing with here are ethical issues. Mm-hmm. I am not a huge fan of the episode Family. Mm-hmm. That is the one where Picard goes back to his old homestead and he has it out with his brother and they end up fighting and they end up liking each other and he ends up going back to be the captain of the Enterprise as we knew he was going to. Right. It's just a character development episode. And if I'm watching it just for that, then I love it. I mean, it is great to learn that much about Picard. There's always good acting when you let Patrick Stewart do something that's off the bridge. I mean, he acts well on the bridge, too. But when you let him off the bridge, there's some really interesting stuff going on. Family is a fine episode, but this is a this is this is a despite the fact or in addition to the fact that it does deal with the character development stuff. Look, I don't want to spoil it, but something's going on between uh, Troy and and Worf. Yeah, I'm not saying something's actually going on between them. (laughs) And I don't remember much about what's coming, honestly. But there is there there something's going on there. Okay, so we're getting some of that sort of like, okay character development stuff. But what we really have here is something that could be applicable to so many different kinds of people in so many different kinds of situations. And so I didn't read it as a soap opera. Hmm. We're we're yes, we're looking at characters that we know that we've seen in certain situations, but we're dealing with you know more applicable things. Like I'm never going to know what it's like to grow up the golden boy who won all the races while my brother had to tend the 400 year old vineyard in France. Okay, <laughs> that's not going to be as applicable. But if I broke my back, what would I do? Yeah, right. Or if yeah. I knew somebody who had broken their back and they asked me to do this, then what do I do? Then what do I say to them? Then, you know, I mean, th- th- there's a lot more applicable stuff here. And then, I mean, it's right in the title. It's just ethical dilemma start to finish in this episode, including do you let Jordy go back to the poker game knowing what we now know? No, 
I, Never. I say no. Never. But of course, I think that's probably going to happen again. So mm-hmm. while a lot of the character development stuff has kind of bothered me to this point, uh, this episode, yes, I think this episode holds up amazingly well. Yeah. Um, even down to this is the first time that I've seen Brian Bonsall do Alexander in a way that didn't bother me that much. Hmm. And it's just one moment. Most of the time, he's still exactly as he's been. He's not terrible. He's not great, honestly. But when he's when he's about to walk down the hall with that great big knife and no supervision <laughs> whatsoever, when he turns back around and gives just that little smile to Worf... And yeah. Worf gives him that little yeah. smile as well. I mean, there are, there are lots of great moments for lots of great characters in this episode. Oddly enough, the one that I found least believable this week is Patrick Stewart. And I think it's just because of the way Picard was written. I mean, seriously, he's not quite enthusiastic about Worf killing himself. Right. But, I mean, there's there's something missing from Picard's character in this episode. But, but I mean, it's still Patrick Stewart, so it's still good. So, um, yeah, I think it yeah. holds up. Now, i got to yeah. ask you, do you think there were... Well, I mean, I, I assume that the bad medical practice is bad, but I mean, what are the messages in this episode as far as you're concerned? Yeah, well, it, you know, again, it, it's not a save the whales message. It's not a don't yeah. eat paint. Um, yeah. But there are ideas here that are deep, thoughtful ideas. If there's a message for Worf, then it's about overcoming his selfishness. He's looking for an easy answer. He's looking for an easy excuse. Spock used to do this. Spock would Spock would deny medical treatment to his father. He's like, oh, well, I, I, I got to work. Sorry. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know? So uh, th- there's a really big selfish streak through Worf in this case. The guy can't face up to the reality of his situation. or He's focusing on the wrong reality of his situation. The most honorable thing for him to do is to do everything that he can for his son. And... It's interesting to see that process unfold of him figuring that out. Um, so I, I think that's a, a nice moment. It's a nice message for him. Now, there's a message here for Dr. Russell as well. She can't play God. She can't be a rogue medical practitioner. She's got to cooperate. She's got to follow some rules. Otherwise, she's dangerous. <laughs> you know, there, there's no room for that. There's room for cooperation. There's room for study. There's room for testing. Um, but not getting the consent of a patient, uh, as we saw earlier with the, the, the poor guy from the Denver who uh, will get a very interesting medical report. His family will get a very interesting medical report about how he died. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to wonder what malpractice lawsuits are like in the 24th century. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, they, these are interesting ideas. They, they don't necessarily tell you as an individual viewer something that you need to do (laughs) like i said it's not an advocacy type episode it's not a hey racism is stupid episode um but i think these are fascinating ideas for the characters in here and they're fascinating ideas to again to i don't know if we have to do a like a golf clap every time you mention the name of the episode but to wrestle over the ethics you're welcome (laughs) of, of what's happening in here both for both for the idea of of medical practice but also of kind of the the cultural sensitivity that that we we sort of came down hard on picard about rightfully mm-hmm. so yeah what about you what what were the ideas that inspired or excited you here well i mean, i think you could probably make a case that this is an anti suicide episode even if you don't make the case that it's an anti assisted suicide episode 
I mean, yeah, it, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, Worf's going to live, mm-hmm. and Worf ends up understanding that. Well, I, I, I think Worf ends up understanding that it's more important for him to live than it is for him to live the way he wants to live. Except he doesn't go ahead and stick with the bands. He still rolls the dice. It's still all or nothing. He's either still going to be walking around fine next week, mm-hmm. or he's going to be dead. He tells he tells uh, uh, Alexander, no, I'm not going to have you help me kill myself, but I am going to do something that could well kill me. I mean, either way, at the end of it, he's going to be either what he wants to be or he's going to be whatever you know, counts for six feet under when you're in space. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think I would say it's an anti-suicide episode, but in the end, Worf is still 50-50 on that or really 63-37 um, on whether or not he's going to live or die. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's one thing that hit me. I, I, there's something that you said that's sort of like, I'm trying to remember where you were exactly on the episode First Contact. And that was the one where mm. we came across the uh, society that was about to be, it's the one where Lilith Stern and Crane uh, took advantage <laughs> right. of Riker. Okay, let's just, right. I mean, they, they come across a, a society that's about to achieve warp drive. And so they go and they make try to make first contact. And in the end, the leaders of the society decide, no, you know what? Our people aren't ready. So they back down. And I thought that was horrible. And I completely disagreed. And now you're saying Worf has to get over his selfishness. And what I'm actually hearing you say is Worf has to get over everything he has known culturally. And, I mean, that's a different kind of thing, right? I mean, would we, have, hmm. would we have understood if he had gone ahead and done this? Because culturally, that is just what you do. Let's talk to our good friend Timison, who has been dead for at least six months now. Right. Um, right. Can't remember Half a Life was that episode where Timison yeah. is going to like, uh, it's, it's time for me to die. Oh, but I found out there's so much more stuff I can do. And I found this woman that I'm in love with. And mm-hmm. yeah, culturally, though, I'm still supposed to die. And in the end, his culture wins. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... I don't know if you're being hard on Worf as an individual or if you're being hard on Klingon society as a rule. But, I mean, he, once again, look, there's plenty of reason now for the Klingon society to turn their back on him. Or maybe he just doesn't tell them next time he's there. He's like, yeah, you know, I should totally be dead because I was, like, paralyzed. And there, and somebody's going to be like, and you didn't do the hukpa? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I probably shouldn't have even told you, huh? Because, yeah, culturally now he is, he's, one, he's pulled another of the underpinnings of his society. And made it less stable. And I'm not saying he should have killed himself. I'm saying when you say Worf has to be less... Worf has gotten over his own selfishness, but we're going to be cool with the whole Itik thing? Well, that's what I said before. I mean, I think Itik has a limit where, you know, other ideas get to fight back. Mm-hmm. If this is an idea that is reprehensible... Again, and let's just put it in the context of Alexander... Yeah. It's one thing for Worf by himself to just say, oh, well, th- this is culturally what I believe. Therefore, I'm going to off myself because I don't feel fully Klingon anymore. Right. Um, you can argue that and you can argue against it. He also has a son in the mix now, a son who is already, you know, missing a mother and who has already been dumped off by his grandparents because they can't take care of him anymore. Yeah. Um it is perfectly valid to fight against that bad idea with a better idea. Itik, you know, Itik is about tolerance of diversity. Yes. But Itik also eschews intolerance. Intolerance doesn't fit within tolerance. Um, so I, I fully respect the idea that 
Riker or I mean, Picard sort of sat this one out, but I fully respect the idea that Riker will call out Worf on this terrible idea that has even more terrible ramifications of the people around him. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I I just I I think Worf has every Worf has every right to believe what he wants to believe. You know, again, the, the respect is for the individual. The respect is not for the belief. The belief is an abstract. I guess I guess the issue that I have is when you said that Worf gets over his selfishness, and I would actually say that Worf. I mean, what he does is actually greater in a way, but he's fighting more than just himself. You're saying he's sitting there going, "Well, I'm not so much Klingon anymore, so I want to die." Well, actually, mm-hmm. that's the law. That's the law of the society to which he. Um, uh, that's the goal he wants to achieve. He wants to be that guy. Mm-hmm. And yes, you can argue about whether or not. There's something more important. And in the end, he does decide there's something more important. I think. I mean, it's his son. Although, again, that still hangs on the whole. He had to be he, dragged there, though. He had to be well, dragged there. Well, I'm, I'm, you see, the problem is I think we just sort of fooled ourselves into thinking that he got there. He's still either going to be the same war if he was last week, next week, or mm. he's going to be dead. Mm. There are two. This is a binary proposition. Either this surgery works flawlessly and he's up and about or the surgery doesn't work at all and he's worm food. Yeah. So really, he never actually hmm, he may mm. never actually come there. Maybe he learns nothing, and Beverly learns nothing because she still thinks it was a mistake to let Russell go ahead and perform the surgery on Worf. Oh my gosh! I'm not sure we actually learned anything in this episode. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I'm sorry, and I thought I was kidding when I said that, but the more I think yeah. about it, I think we actually may have like certainly had a lot to play with in this episode, but I'm not sure our. I'm not sure what our characters learned. Hmm. All right. Well, maybe our <laughs> listeners will have something to say. They know how to contact us. Meanwhile, Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive <laughs> producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. You'll find links to not only the Roddenberry store, but the Roddenberry Foundation and many of the creative new projects coming from Roddenberry Entertainment. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, The Outcast. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at Warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Thanks to a mix-up at the warehouse, we are ready to quintuple your order for A Taste of Pulaski, the book. Please, call today. Seriously, we have purchased far too many and may be in a lot of trouble. End transmission.